Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. This is The Roy Green Show podcast. I want to bring in the uh, Auditor General for the province of Ontario. Bonnie Lissick is with us. Um, when an Auditor General is in constant disagreement with the government's accounting methodology, that is really concerning. And Ms. Lissick has been in disagreement with the accounting methodologies of the Wynne government for a number of years. And most recently, uh, the finance minister for Ontario said that the deficit was going to be $6.7 billion, and the Auditor General said, no, it's going to be $11.7 billion. Ms. Lissick, thank you very much for taking the time. Good to talk to you. Well, thank you for having me, Roy. Uh, so, so when the Ontario government declares that they're going to f- uh, be facing a $6.7 billion deficit, and you have it at $11.7 billion, and the Financial Accountability Office has it almost at $12 billion also. How does the, where's the discrepancy? In layman's terminology, where does this, how does this all not fit? Um, I guess there are two contributing factors. One is the government is understating the recording of expenses related to the rate reduction it has provided Ontario consumers. So, The government still has to make payments to power generators, and they're borrowing money to do that, and there's interest on the money. So they're not recording the expense of paying the power generators and the interest on the money that they're borrowing to pay those generators. That's that's the uh, one area. And the second area is that the government has understated the pension expense related to a couple pensions in Ontario. So understating expenses is serious business because it gives the wrong impression about available monies for a government, right? Well, that's right. It creates the perception that there is more money available than there is, and it states that there's more money on new initiatives and programs, yet uh, the government still has to borrow money. So, you know, it creates uh, the perception that if you balance a budget, that you don't have to borrow money other than for capital, but in this case, they have to borrow money because they've understated these expenses, and so they have to borrow money to cover that. When the finance minister or the premier say that it's a misunderstanding between you, the Auditor General, and they, the government, what do you say in reply? I would say that the correct thing to do would be to record the expenses that are not being recorded. Um, you know, we um, I passed the accounting or the, the under-recording of expenses related to the Fair Hydro Plan by my colleagues, the Auditor Generals across Canada, and they agree with my office's conclusion. And uh, we've also, um, you know, had outside opinions from external firms and the, uh, the, the retired director of the Public Sector Accounting Board in Canada also indicates that it would be the correct thing to do for the government to record all the expenses related to both the pension expense and the uh, the power generator payments. Because they argue, the government argues that monies in the pu- public sector pension fund and the teacher's pension fund is money that they may add to their bottom line, which even to me, and I was not what you call uh, a math whiz, uh, that doesn't make any sense at all. Uh, no, we agree with you. Um, we say to the government, give us some evidence, give us a letter that's signed by the union that say that you are entitled and you will be reducing the teacher's minimum contributions or withdrawing any cash from that pension plan. And that proves then to us that you actually have an entitlement and an asset to record on your statement. But if you can't show us that, then the correct thing is that um, you, you know, record the expense, the correct pension expense. Ms. Lizick, is there another province that has the same level of, let me use the government's word, disagreement with its Auditor General, or is this exclusive to the province of Ontario, as far as you know? Well, you know, this is likely the first time in Ontario's history that we've had the magnitude of issues that we do have on the statement. Um, you know, I can't speak specifically to other provinces other than to say that, you know, in their past, there have been what we call as auditors qualifications on the government statements where uh, you say the bottom line is wrong and, and uh, 
and tell the public that what the difference is between the government's bottom line and the auditor's conclusion. Um, so that that has existed in, you know, for instance, British Columbia and uh, Quebec, I'm aware of. But, you know, over time, those those issues tend to resolve themselves. I mean, this situation is akin to a private sector situation, you know, where if General Motors auditors qualified the statement, that would be a huge issue. And so, you know, we think the fact that an Auditor General's office is qualifying government statements, that is also a huge issue. It is. Uh, it is. Mm-hmm. Ms. Lesnick, uh, is the biggest concern that you have about the accounting methodologies and the spending that has been uh, that has taken place under the auspices of the, the Wynn government, would your concern be hydro and perhaps the fair hydro plan in which the government borrowed a great deal of money to cut electricity rates by 25 percent, which which helped them as far as um, tamping down the anger of the consumer, but over the long term is simply going to require us to pay more back as as taxpayers. Is that the biggest is is that the biggest problem that you have with them, the hydro funding? Um, on the hydro front, uh, front, I guess you know it's a policy decision to do that, and and we don't question the policy decision. I guess we question the method in which they're recording it, and so that's why we we say they're understating expenses. So um, the other side of that is they're having they they had a they put in place sort of a, a framework of how they would finance this. Uh, rather than you know simply borrow the money and pay the uh, power generators, they put in a sort of a, a a different framework, and that framework for how they borrow money could potentially cost uh, people in Ontario up to four billion dollars more. And I'm quoting from a financial accountability officer estimate. And so our concern is not only is the accounting wrong, but in order to sort of avoid showing a number on your bottom line, like the impact of the expense on the bottom line and to avoid showing an increase in net debt on the government statements, they're borrowing a certain way that's going to cost people more money in Ontario over the long run. So, for instance, you know, the cost of reducing electricity rates is about $18.4 billion, but that's going to have to incur $21 billion in interest. So down the road, people will be paying back $39.4 billion versus the original amount. Uh, the rate reduction amount. That's a huge amount of money. It is a huge amount of money. Yes. And uh, and given the fact that, as far as the deficit is concerned, uh, they're declaring a the government's declaring a six point seven billion dollar deficit. You have it at eleven point seven billion. I trust you more than I trust them, and that's another big amount of money. That's five billion dollars. That will also accrue interest, and again, the taxpayer is on the hook for everything. Yeah, I think, um, you know, the, the difference, that $5 billion that we're saying, that's comprised both of the pension expenses and of yeah, the costs associated with the rate reduction. So it's $5 billion in total for eighteen nineteen. It'll be another $5.6 billion difference for nineteen twenty and $6 billion for 2021. Because mm. um, we've commented on the three years um, in the government's pre-election report which we were required to do under law. Well, it's very, I mean, it's, it's very important that we have an Auditor General. It's extremely important that we have an Auditor General who's not afraid to take on the governments and challenge the governments. And I find it almost ludicrous when the government suggested at one point, finance minister suggested that you didn't quite understand how Hydro One operates when you were the auditor for Manitoba Hydro. So, uh, Ms. Lizick, thank yeah. you so much for, for, for spending the time with us today and, and shedding light on, on how this works. For many of us, it's just the, uh, the fact that we know we have to pay a lot of money, but when we know why that's happening, that's certainly uh, a great benefit to all of us. Well, thank you very much for uh, providing me this time. I appreciate it. Have a great day. You too. Bye-bye. Bonnie Lizick is the Auditor General for the province of Ontario. You're listening to The Roy Green Show, heard weekends from 2 to 5 on 900 CHML. Yesterday, Michelle Rempel, who is the immigration critic, citizenship and immigration critic for the Conservative Party of Canada, held a news conference about our Canadian border. And it's the border has become something that is a, a, an issue of great concern to a significant number of Canadians. I would suspect the majority of Canadians, because we don't know what's going on. 
we really don't know what is happening. We know people are entering Canada illegally, and we know the government is mostly inactive on the, on this issue, on this situation. And so many of the people who enter the country, I would imagine, think back or, or, or maybe have a piece of paper in their hands that has a tweet on it from uh, January the 28th of 2017 from our current prime minister when he welcomed everybody to Canada who was trying to get away from war and 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 uh, other issues of concern. Anyway, he had no business making that kind of declaration, but Justin Trudeau did. So there's a couple of things we want to speak with Michelle Rempel about. She's back with us on the program. Michelle, thank you for taking the time. And what was what was the uh, the essence of the news conference that you held yesterday? Well, this week was just a disaster um, on the part of Justin Trudeau liberals with regard to the management of our border. We started the week off um, with understanding that we're going into summer months likely to see about 50,000 people cross the border over the summer months illegally into Canada at the Quebec border crossing. Uh, and then uh, the Department of Homeland Security in the United States uh, had let Canadian media know that they were considering proposals to amend the Safe Third Country Agreement, which is what I've been asking the government for, uh, as well as our party leader, Andrew Scheer, for well over a year. So this was news to us. But then the government stepped back, and they're like, no, 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 nothing official happened. And so it was just this back and forth between officials and, and, and the minister on like, what was actually happening with regard to the amendment of this agreement. Now, I want to see this agreement amended so that it's applied to the entire border, and it takes away the ability of someone to illegally cross the border into Canada and then claim asylum from the United States. Um, I also had department officials at our committee this week, and boy, they couldn't even answer. This was a briefing specifically for the illegal border crossing crisis, and we had probably 12 department officials from every agency related to this, and none of them could tell me how many people illegally crossed the border in April at a parliamentary committee hearing. So, you know, I got quite angry because as a parliamentarian, I should be able to evaluate uh, how bad the situation is, because the government is also saying that, don't worry, they've got it under control, which clearly they don't. Um, finally, we got a ballpark estimate, which should, you know, concerns me that we're ballpark estimating people, of about 25, 2,600 people in April alone. Um, so this is just, at this point in time, it's just out, out of control. Uh, we found out yesterday that the government is actually formally setting up a refugee camp at the U.S.-Canada border. They've purchased over, I think, 520 um, fancy little tent tra trailers. And, and frankly, we wouldn't be needing those if they had amended the agreement or done something to protect the sovereignty of our borders well over a year ago, as I've been you know, banging my head against the brick wall that is Justin Trudeau for that period of time. So it was very frustrating. And it sounds so frustrated on your show, but it's just it's, it's just the you know the incompetence continues. Well, we would like to know what's going on at our border, and we don't, and clearly you don't. And from we understand, the government did tell the CBSA officers, the Canada Border Services Agency officers, not to speak with media. You don't have the right to speak with media. We only have designated spokespeople who will speak with media. So that message is being uh, obviously. Um, being managed by 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 the government, I don't know what the objective is of Mr. Trudeau's government. Do you have any idea, Michelle? Well, I think it's political calculus for him at this point in time. Like you mentioned, the hashtag "Welcome to Canada" tweet, right? Right. So, uh, you know, he tweeted this out after the American administration rescinded some of the temporary protected status uh, for for people who were in the United States. They also had an executive order. I mean, the Americans are allowed to, to make those types of decisions. You know, we can, you know, speculate on whether or not they're proper or not. Regardless, the American asylum claim system remains the strongest in the world. So it's not like it's no longer a safe third country. So he's, he's in this position now where he's built his brand on, you know, very glossy pictures with refugees in, at an airport. Uh, but we're seeing, you know, the, the mayor of Toronto saying over 40% of the homeless shelter capacity in Toronto is now uh, taken up by people who have claimed asylum via this method this year. Uh, Ottawa area mayor saying the same thing, even adding it on with um, with the food bank, sorry, city councilor from Ottawa, um, 
province of Manitoba, a province of Quebec. I mean, everybody is saying our social programs are under severe strain. Uh, so he needs to do something, but he's, I think, worried about alienating um, some form of voter that doesn't want to secure our border. And that, you know, should be really frightening. Um, so I don't think he's doing anything because he's just hoping the problem is going to go away without any action on his part, which is wrong. Yeah, an extension of the budgets will balance themselves, thinking. Absolutely. Now, when you say 50,000, if the estimate is 50,000 will illegally cross the border into Canada, that's about a half of our annual approved immigration total. Isn't that, isn't that something? And that's just for the summer. So the figures that we saw were 400, uh, an anticipated um, amount of 400 per people per day just in the summer months. And we know that we're, um, you know, with the numbers from April, we're, I think, over 10,000 for this year already. So, you know, when I asked department officials this year, like, do you have any idea about how many people are coming like how are you forecasting resources and all of these things and they're like well you don't know don't know man and like I, that's not an acceptable response to a parliamentary committee it's not an acceptable response uh to maintaining a planned orderly and compassionate immigration system and uh you know it was very interesting too um some of the people on the committee have spent a lot of time uh, trying to quibble over the term illegal and it, you know it gave me some satisfaction that when they were asking uh, these department officials this week, well, are, is it in fact illegal? And they're like, yes, when somebody illegally crosses the border, uh, that is illegal. Uh, the ability to claim asylum this way just renders their, their ability, the RTMP or the CBSA ability to, 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 to do anything about it, moot. So, uh, you know, I just find it very frustrating that all of these politicians are trying to somehow normalize this behavior when in fact we should be saying, especially for new Canadians who might be listening to your show today who came to the country legally, have family waiting for year-long waits to come through proper channels, and they're going, well, there's only one wait time for this to reduce in days, and it's for somebody illegally entering the country. That's yeah. They love it when you ask them questions. I saw that very clearly with the finance minister, Mr. Morneau, when you asked him questions at the parliamentary uh, status of women's uh, committee meeting. You're listening to The Roy Green Show. Heard weekends from 2 to 5 on 900 CHML. Can I just get 20 seconds from you on the DACA issue? Because you had an exchange, did you not, in committee with a, with a senior a bureaucrat about the, 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 the DACA young people in the United States who may have to leave the U.S. and now they're talking about having, inviting them to Canada? Yes. Um, so this came up at the end of our committee meeting, which usually, you know, things get kind of quiet. Um, but this department official uh, just out of nowhere said, well, we would gladly welcome this cohort to Canada. They're, they're highly skilled. And that's a fairly major policy announcement. Uh, it's something that the minister hasn't spoken on yet. So um, I had to use some um, procedural tactics to get uh, a spot to speak and question him because the chair was trying to close the meeting off. And uh, when I did, I said, like, well, who's we? Who Who, in, who is inviting these to ca- people to Canada? And I'm like, look, like, I mean, the government can invite different people to Canada, that's fine, but it should be the minister explaining it, right? So this department official said, well, Canadians would welcome them. They said, well, where, have you done any data modeling on the skill set or how they would match the needs of the Canadian economy and how many people are you planning on bringing in? And it was very clear that, you know, this department official was not speaking on behalf of the government and that they hadn't done any data modeling. In fact, I even ended up asking him, so where did you get your data from to make that assertion at a parliamentary committee? And like, I mean, this is a director general level bureaucrat. And I said, you know, he's like, oh, from the media. So I said, you're, you're making this policy assertion at a par- parliamentary committee based on something you read in a newspaper. You know, it was just really um, it's weird. See, this is, you know, when, when this is a sign of a government, though, like like I've been in cabinet and I, I work with some really ex- exceptional public servants. But you are there as a minister with a mandate from Canadians. And you have to be giving direction on how the programs are being rolled out or what policy is coming forward, because you're the one that is politically accountable to the Canadian people. So it's very inappropriate for department officials to be making statements like that at these committees, because it um, actually sends a policy signal. Uh, I mean, like, I mean that, that could have had serious implications in the U.S., mm. right? Yeah. Um, so it's just very, uh, I'm sure... Um, I, I was very unimpressed by that, and I hope the minister dealt with it afterwards. I just want our listeners to know, if you go to Michelle's Twitter account, at Michelle Rempel, 
and you go to May the 3rd, just a couple of days ago, two days ago, you can follow that series of uh, tweets by Michelle, and you can read what she what she wrote about that. I won't keep you ask you to stay for the whole thing, Michelle, but if you can just set up, please, what happened, how this exchange between you and Bill Morneau started, the finance minister, and then I'll thank you for joining us, and we'll play it on the air. Fantastic. So I um, we had Finance Minister Morneau come to the Status of Women Committee, ostensibly to talk about Justin Trudeau's much-touted gender budget uh, that was supposed to make life a lot more equitable for women with these tools called gender-based analyses. And that's basically saying that we would look at public policy from the lens of does it make life more more difficult for Canadian women or better. Um, you know, I'm, I'm all for talking about removing barriers uh, to entry uh, or, or equality of barriers to equality of opportunity for, for all people. But it's very interesting what happens when I started to question our finance minister on if he had applied a gender-based analysis to a brand new tax, the carbon tax. Well, it's classic. And uh, thank you for joining us today. And we're going to play it on the air now. Thank you, Michelle. Thanks for having me. Michelle Rempel, Conservative Member of Parliament. Let's play for you. Michelle Rempel questioning our Federal Minister of Finance at the Status of Women's Committee hearing. What is the relative cost burden of your carbon tax for women as compared to men? Sorry, can you, I didn't hear the beginning of your question. What is the relative cost burden of your carbon tax for women as compared to men? Uh, As you uh, likely know, We believe that uh, for our economy to be successful over the long term, we we need to make sure that we're considering also the environmental challenges. Since you've got to leave, I'll just ask, has a gender-based analysis been completed for the carbon tax? Again, where I was getting to is that we believe a carbon pricing approach is important, and we've also said that we need uh, to find a way to uh, move that revenue back to the provinces. So So, has a a gender-based analysis been completed for the carbon tax? As a revenue-neutral measure, uh, you'll understand that uh, we see this as something that's important for the long-term health of our environment and our economy. So has a gender-based analysis been completed for the carbon tax? And as I mentioned, this is a revenue-neutral measure that we uh, see will help our environment over the long term and enable our economy to be Um, successful. um, You know, you've you've talked about the wage gap and these different things. Um, Did you do any modeling? Is the price price elasticity of the consumption of carbon the same for women as it is for men in Canada? As I've said, uh, we uh, we believe that carbon pricing is important. We also believe but that this revenue. But you also say on page two nineteen of the budget. Approach you've is, also said uh, on page two nineteen to do it properly. So you've also said on page two nineteen of the budget that you're putting in place a gender results framework, which is a whole of government tool. So has that tool not been applied to the carbon tax? And again, I'll repeat: uh, in putting in price carbon pricing, we know it'll have a long-term positive impact on the environment. So it has been done for everyone. And uh, it will have an impact, of course, that from the federal government standpoint is revenue neutral. Could you table the gender-based analysis for the carbon tax with this committee? I'll just repeat again. So it hasn't been done? I will repeat again that carbon pricing from the federal government standpoint is a revenue neutral measure that will so, over the so long then you, term you encourage can, behaviors that will help the environment so, for all so you Canadians. So you can table the gender-based analysis for the carbon tax with this committee? What I will tell you is that the approach that we've taken is one that will enable all Canadians as, to be... I'll take that as a code for no, um, and I'll take that as code for it hasn't been done. So my question is, if there's a whole-of-government approach to gender-based analysis, and you're imposing a brand-new tax on all Canadians, and we know that there's a pay equity gap for women, and many women bear a disproportionate cost of childcare, why would you not do a gender-based analysis for the carbon tax? As I've said, we, uh, we recognize that the way to get to behaviors that are going to ensure that we uh, so properly consider environmental impact would you say that the carbon tax is sexist? Well, would you? I mean, has there been a gender-based analysis? I'm just wondering. As, like, a, as I've mentioned, uh, we uh, we put in place the, the carbon pricing approach in order to deal with the long-term environmental impacts of carbon. So if you've done no gender-based analysis for it, and we know that women bear the disproportionate cost of childcare and things like driving kids around and paying for transport and food, 
would it I would beg to argue that the climate the carbon tax is sexist do you have so you know what the answer is going to be from Mr. Morneau to that uh, variation on the theme by Michelle Rempel remember the Liberals stated that uh, no 2018 budget decision was arrived at without a gender-based analysis being conducted so they must love her you're listening to The Roy Green Show. Heard weekends from 2 to 5 on 900 CHML. Candace, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me, Roy. It's great to be here. So uh, let's start with, uh, if we can just ask you a couple of questions about the border first. What's going on at the border now? Re-illegals entering Canada. What have you observed? Yeah. What, do you, what do you know? Well, I, I share uh, Michelle Rempel, MP Michelle Rempel's uh, frustration with just the inability to get answers. So I went down there myself to the popular illegal border crossing at Roxham Road in rural Quebec. Uh, you know, in the 20 minutes or so I was there, I saw eight people get out of taxis and cross illegally. Um, you know, there's a whole impromptu border set up right there. There's RCMP, there's a holding center, there's a bunch of permanent buildings that have been built. And unfortunately, Roy, the RCMP and CBA, CBSA, the Canadian Border Services Agencies, both refuse to answer questions. They have a strict edict from the Trudeau government that they're not allowed to talk to media. And they wouldn't even answer basic questions like, you know, what is that building? Why is there a CBSA truck here? Um, you know, uh, how many people have crossed this border? Really basic, basic questions uh, that they just refuse to answer. So I did my own reporting. I, I broke a couple of news stories. Um, you know, I saw electronics and, and fancy iPhones and Apple products that get dis- discarded and thrown out uh, on the way across the border because these migrants don't want any trace, any way to trace back to their past. They don't want anyone to know who they are um, or who they've been communicating to. Um, and, I, and I also found that there was a CBSA vehicle parked at this, at this border crossing, which contradicts the idea that the RCMP are the ones who are in charge of intercepting illegal immigrants who cross. If Canadian Border Service agents are there, Roy, they should be doing their job, which is enforcing Canada's border laws, enforcing that safe third country agreement. Uh, so, you know, I went down there to do reporting. I had more questions uh, than answers at the end of it all. Well, I, you know, I found it particularly noteworthy that you found all of these expensive, or that you found a number of very expensive mobile phones ranging anywhere up to thirteen or $1,600 that had been locked, and as you said, with the precise intent to mask the, 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 the history of the person who presented themselves to the RCMP and said, I'm a refugee claimant. So that's... Well, we have no idea who these folks yeah. are, and they do that on purpose. You know, anyone who can discard a $1,500 brand new Apple phone uh, without thinking twice about it, uh, it probably doesn't really fit the description that most people have in mind of a refugee. No, it sure doesn't. It's like the old story, not so, and, and they were true in the early 90s, people arriving with Gucci luggage but no passport. <laughs> Um, talk to us about what you find found out about the summer jobs funding program, what the federal government is in fact doing as far as funding is concerned, where they told church groups, no, uh, you didn't check off all the boxes, particularly the one that we wanted, the pro-choice uh, box, or you're not getting any money. What did you find out? Yeah, so well, as folks who know, this grant has become very controversial. The Trudeau government added this attestation, so a group had to pledge not only that the job that the, that the fund is, is going towards, but the core mandate of the organization um, it, it adheres to and respects all of these sort of uh, values that are above and beyond the charter. Uh, so we're talking about abortion rights, uh, also the right to be uh, free from discrimination based on sex, religion, um, and sexual orientation. So, you know, that that's, that's an interesting component because so many groups have morally chosen not to check that box and therefore remove themselves from funding. Well, I found just through the proactive disclosure uh, of who, who has been awarded this uh, grant from the Trudeau government, a whole number of very problematic organizations in Canada, Islamic organizations that have had uh, very public ties to terrorism, one group that got completely defunded by the federal government in 2009 because they were um, ma- making uh, you know, calls for extremism, uh, making anti-Semitic comments, uh, calling for the destruction of Israel, um, a decision that was made by the Harper government, and then Roy, it was backed up by a federal judge. So an impartial federal court looked at the information and determined that the Harper government had acted reasonably when they took away funding from this group. Um, so, so there's that one organization. Another one where uh, Imam made very controversial anti-gay 
statements that were caught on tape at an Edmonton Islamic school back in 2013, saying that being gay is like having a disease, it requires special treatment, and that he doesn't like being associated with gay people. So, you know, these organizations somehow managed to receive funding from the Trudeau government and the Canada Suburb Jobs Act, um, while other Catholic groups and Christian groups that don't even engage in political activity, you know, we're talking about uh, soup kitchens and homeless shelters and, and summer, summer camps, uh, th- these organizations somehow were not able to pass this this Trudeau government's values test uh, to be able to receive this grant. What's the reaction been to the column, Candice? Well, I think people are pretty disappointed. Uh, First of all, I I don't know why groups like this, um, the ones that I've described, are even able to operate in Canada. You know, one of the organizations that I found, they had actually had financial ties to the terrorist group Hamas. Um, They had transferred money to an organization that then transferred that money So I think a lot of Canadians are shocked in general that this kind of stuff is going on in our country. And not only is the government sort of putting a blind eye to this this actions that should be illegal, um, they are actually putting taxpayer money towards these organizations and these groups. I think it's pretty appalling. Uh, It's quite the double standard, especially when the Trudeau government themselves politicize this issue by trying to bring in their values test. Uh, saying that if you're pro, if you if you're if you're anti-abortion, you're pro-life, and that's your core value, you, you don't you don't qualify for federal funding. And yet these other groups that have pretty abhorrent uh, uh, records of, of things that they've said and done uh, somehow are are able. So the reaction has been pretty overwhelming. That Canadians are pretty disappointed that that our money is going towards organizations like this. Do you expect to hear anything by way of explanation from the government? Well, so I, I, I don't, but I, I have reached out to these individual organizations that I've been investigating, and I just had some basic questions. You know, did you, uh, were you required to, to sign on to this attestation? What, what are your opinion um, when it comes to the abortion issue, when it comes to gay rights? Uh, you know, are, are, is, is there a, d- a double standard here? Are they being held to the same standard? Um, unfortunately, none of the groups have responded to requests for interviews. They haven't replied to my emails or calls. So I'm a little disappointed that they're not engaging in a, in a conversation here. And as, as far as the Trudeau government, I mean, I, I think it's just a pretty blatant double standard. And, and I haven't haven't heard any comments from anyone um, acknowledging the, the problem here, acknowledging uh, the issues that have arisen over this Canada Cyber Jobs grant in general. You know, we heard uh, a couple of weeks ago that there was an organization out in BC that was getting funding uh, for in order to do activism against that um, Trans Mountain Pipeline. So, you know, Canadian, again, Canadian taxpayers are paying for activism that's hurting our economy and it's coming from our tax dollars. I think the whole program and the whole idea of having this value test has totally gone sideways and backfired on the Trudeau government. Well, and you know, it's, it's the fundamental question of journalism that, that you want to just shout out at them, and that is why. Why are you doing this? What's the objective? And and I, the two probably aren't tied together, but one of the first thoughts I had was Justin Trudeau had said to the New York Times five days after becoming prime minister that Canada was going to become the first post-national state. I somehow now, after reading that and knowing that, I see almost everything that the man does through that prism. I know it's not fair, but it's just my reflexive reaction. Then I think about it. But this is uh, there's something significantly wrong, and as you say, double standard with what they are doing. Who's getting the money and who's not? Because they are, they're conflicting with, they're conflicting their own standards. Right. Well, it's funny because he said he said in that same interview that Canada has no core set of values that everyone has their own and there's no mainstream. But then, you know, he has these particular values that he has. You know, his opinions when it comes to you know reproductive rights or, or the, the sanctity of life, and he's imposing it onto all of us. So, yeah, you know, the, the open border stuff and the turning a blind eye to illegal immigration definitely goes in line with that whole idea that Canada is a post-modern, post-nationalist state. Mm-hmm. Um, but then when it comes to him imposing his values, it's, it's, a, it's a little bit rich, I think. It is. And, and there's there are a lot of things that we can point to and, and ask uh, questions about, but probably we'll, won't receive any answers to. Candace, thank you so much. I really appreciate you coming on the show. Great. Thank you for having me, Roy. Candace Malcolm, uh, her book is Losing True North, Justin Trudeau's Assault on Canadian Citizenship and uh, Columnist with the uh, Sun newspapers. And let me get, if I can get this thing to work, 
Yeah, here we are. Uh, you can follow Candace on Twitter at Candace Malcolm. You're listening to The Roy Green Show. Heard weekends from 2 to 5 on 900 CHML. What other country than, than Canada would just systematically shoot itself in its economic foot consistently and repeatedly by opposing a delivery system for a product the country has that the rest of the world wants and needs, which would deliver a tremendous amount of money to the country. What other country would do that? Well, we're specialists in it. A TD Bank study showed that $117 billion was lost over seven years in selling our Canadian oil at a discount to the United States. And why do we do that? Well, because we don't have pipelines that reach ports in the east and the west coast so we can sell it to international clients and help our Canadian economy and help our Canadian social systems and help Canadians from coast to coast to coast. Frank McKenna McKenna is the deputy chair of the TD Bank. He's a former Canadian ambassador to the United States, former premier of New Brunswick. Mr. McKenna, thank you for the time, and I hope everyone in New Brunswick will be safe and uh, those floodwaters will cause the minimal amount of damage. Well, thank you, Roy. It's um, it, it's a very disconcerting situation. Yeah. Uh, we all are looking at it, and I know Canadians will help stand up and, and help and provide assistance as they can. Now, your your study, the TD Bank study, would show that $117 billion lost over seven years of selling our oil at a discount to the United States. Would you speak to that, please? Well, uh, I think that's it's consistent with many, many other studies that have been done, some even more recently, that point out um, the, the very sharp discount that we're receiving from President Trump and his friends in the United States for our oil, because we have no other markets that we can sell them to. So as a result of that, um, oil is discounted between 15 and $30 a barrel, uh, going into the United States and big refineries down there. Um, and meantime, <laughs> the ultimate irony, of course, is that on the East Coast, we've got refineries that have to... Uh, Use oil that comes in at world prices. Uh, six, uh, I think it's six to seven hundred thousand barrels a day of oil coming in, being exported from around the world because we can't get access to Canadian oil. So it's the ultimate irony that we're paying uh, through the nose at one end of the country and that we're getting hosed down at the other end of the country. Did it surprise you that Energy East was stopped abruptly in the province of mm-hmm. Quebec, particularly when they had gone through that horrific uh, tragedy at Lac Megantic? Yeah, look, um, ostensibly uh, the reason given, uh, which the government of Canada um, uh, tries to uh, promulgate, is, is that the market conditions had changed for the for the company. Uh, that's not my view. My view is the regulatory burden became so high that uh, no no company could really expose their shareholders to that those kinds of losses. Having seen uh, how difficult it's been to uh, build pipelines elsewhere, as a result, we don't end up with. Um, any access to national oil or gas in Atlanta, Canada. Uh, we, we've got a refinery that's stranded there that has to pay world oil prices. We've got a massive investment uh, potential of a, of, a, of a new refinery that could uh, put as many as 5,000 uh, people a year to work for the next five or six years if we could have had access to that oil. A huge amount of wealth uh, destroyed for us uh, because of the inability to get a pipeline to our marketplace. And now we're looking at an extension that's required for Trans Mountain Pipeline that has been approved by the federal government, and all the regulatory uh, I's have been dotted and T's have been crossed, and the British Columbia government is going to the Court of Appeals to find out if they have the the, the legislative power to stop it, and the federal government, I think, is, 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 is just treading water. Mr. McKenna, how frustrating is it to see what's going on with Trans Mountain? Well, it's, it's extraordinarily frustrating. Um, I'd say as a citizen, but for our country as well, that it's a it's a, a clear example of the country not working appropriately. Let's remember a couple of things. First of all, this is not a new route. Uh, this route has has transported oil for something like 60 years uh, in the existing pipeline. In fact, it's been upgraded five or six times. Uh, what this is is a new fight, not a new route. Uh, secondly, uh, there are at least 43 indigenous communities in the path of that pipeline. That have signed benefit agreements with the uh, with the pipeline proponent. 
So this mythology that all First Nations are against it is wrong. In fact, it would seem that not even the majority are. In fact, it would be a, a minority that would be. And thirdly, another myth that needs to be exploded is that this is not reducing the amount of oil being produced. On the contrary, oil is being shipped by train. It's also being shipped at pipelines, which are so compressed that we're suffering huge discounts. So bottom line is oil is still being produced. Canadian uh, taxpayers are, are, are getting absolutely savage because we're losing uh, tens of billions of dollars a year because we just can't get the right economic rent for our for our resource. And I think that's just criminal. It really is a head shaker, isn't it, that you have this, you have all of this waiting. It's all there. It's just waiting to be exported. And it's, it's just a matter of, con, of completing the technical requirements. And, and then you can get at the business of, of exporting your oil at, a, at a world prices and bringing a, a money into this country, which would help everyone. It's, it's a, just a tremendous head shaker, and I'm being polite when I say that. Do you, do you have confidence that Trans Mountain is going to be completed, or do you think Kinder Morgan is just going to walk away, and then it's going to be up to Canadians to foot a $7.4 billion bill and still run into objections? Uh, the pipeline's going to be built. Um, it, it just can't, <clears throat> it can't not be built. If, 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 if that were to be the case, uh, the rest of the world would look at us uh, literally as, as the country that can't get the things done. Uh, trust me, I just got back from Asia, and, uh, and, and, and I was talking to a lot of investors about LNG, which is something that BC wants. And, and these investors are saying, look, we, we need to see what's going to happen with Kinder Morgan. Why would we take a chance on a province that just can't, can't get things done? Remember this as well, Roy, um, so that people can put it in perspective. If we applied the same logic today uh, 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 for projects in the past, we would not have a Trans-Canada Highway linking our country. We wouldn't have a railroad linking our country. We wouldn't have the St. Lawrence Seaway. We wouldn't have the Port of Vancouver. Uh, A a lot of the uh, projects which create huge wealth for our country would never be built if you applied the kind of criteria that we're seeing today. And, And for that reason as well, we have to demonstrate as a country that we work. We're not just a collection of provinces with veto powers at the at the borders, but we're a country that actually works, and that each premier is bigger than his own individual province, and also represents a national interest. Um, and if we can't establish that principle, this, this country is doomed to really a second-class existence um, compared to the potential it would have to be a world leader. I spoke with uh, Premier Scott Moe of Saskatchewan twice in the last few weeks. And uh, Premier Mo was talking about the British Columbia effort, Premier Horgan's effort to delay or stop the, uh, the pipeline, the Trans Mountain completion, <clears throat> extension completion. And he said, if the Premier, and I'm paraphrasing, but I'm close, said, if the Premier of British Columbia can do that, then the question is, do we have a country? Yeah, well, I could, look, I can understand the frustration of, of the Premier here. I, um, I, I, I'm sure that uh, Premier Horgan is, 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 is uh, principle-driven. Uh, principle um, I have no reason to think otherwise. I think he's wrong on two very, very fundamental issues. And I think as he collects more experience as a Premier, uh, he'll realize that. I, I can tell you, as a young Premier, I was wrong on, on issues that I, I wish I had, uh, had, had a more thoughtful uh, approach to at the beginning. Uh, he's wrong, for example, in, in saying that his interest and his only interest is British Columbia. That's simply not the case. I, I've never had a day in which I couldn't proudly say that uh, I, was, I was a Canadian first and a New Brunswicker second. And I think most premiers are like that. Um, this is a precious country that we have. And surely to goodness, we can pursue our provincial interest while respecting the national interest as well. Number two, the, the sense in one of his recent interviews that every individual First Nations has a veto. If that's the case, then he might as well uh, throw the keys on the table and walk away from his province. The Supreme Court has not gone that far, even though I, I must confess they, they have thoroughly muddled the jurisprudence on this to the point where it's almost impossible to figure out what they're really saying. But if, if that's the case, that means that, that every First Nations would have to sign off that's, that's a bar that, that nobody can get over. And remember, when you go to First Nations communities, you'll often find that it's not just the chief that has to sign, 
but uh, tribal elders may say they have a veto right as well. We have a project in New Brunswick where uh, all of the reservations have signed off, and two grandmothers are picketing the site, claiming they've got the right to stop it. So you, 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 we've got to have some common sense prevail here now, and, and, and we've, got to, we've, got, we've got to establish some means of getting decisions made uh, that are not going to be by absolute uh, veto power of everybody involved. Otherwise, every province would have a veto. Every, uh, every municipality might have a veto in the country. That's a recipe for disaster, for gridlock and disaster. So we, we, just, we just can't allow uh, those kinds of precedents to prevail if, if we're going to have a real country. Mr. McKenna, I really appreciate the time. Thanks for talking to us today. Okay, thank you very much. All the best. Frank McKenna, Deputy Chair of the Toronto Dominion, or TD Bank, former Canadian Ambassador to the United States and former Premier of New Brunswick. You're listening to The Roy Green Show. Heard weekends from 2 to 5 on 900 CHML. Mike Smith joins me on The Roy Green Show. He's a Vancouver Province columnist, CKNW talk show host, and Mike recently wrote a column, Breaking Down Where Your Gas Money Goes. Uh, Mike, I feel ripped off at a buck thirty-three a gallon, a liter rather, a liter. Hey, try try paying a buck sixty, Roy. Yay! Come on, we're hurting out here. This, this is the highest gas prices in North America ever that we're seeing in uh, Metro Vancouver right now. I mean, people here are used to paying, uh, getting burned at the gas pump for sure, but it's been particularly painful the last uh, few weeks. So gas prices are extremely high here. You had uh, Premier John Horgan, whom you mentioned. Um, he thinks the answer is to build another refinery out here to refine more fuel, which would which would be great, you know. But uh, who's going to do that? I mean, we got a, a newspaper publisher out here named David Black who's been trying for years to get a refinery going off, get off the ground, and you know it's just not going to happen. So at the same time, you got Horgan um, criticizing the federal government for saying they should do something about these high gas prices here. They should somehow get a, a more fuel refining capacity built here in B.C. At the same time he's doing that, he's also jacking up the B.C. carbon tax, which went up on April 1st again on the price of gasoline. And the purpose of the carbon tax, of course, is to discourage people from driving. It's supposed to be a, it's supposed to be a discouragement from burning gasoline and increasing emissions. That's why he's putting up the carbon tax. So on the one hand, he's saying, oh, isn't it terrible that the price of gas is so high? Trudeau should do something about it. At the same time he does that, he's actually deliberately increasing the price of gasoline to get people not, not, not to drive. So he's talking out of both sides of his mouth. Well, and you, uh, you point out that on April the 1st, it was uh, 7.78 cents per liter, the carbon right. tax. So on a typical 50-liter fill-up, and you're calling me right, you're now paying nearly 4 bucks in B.C. carbon tax alone. Wasn't right. that supposed to be, and you touch on that in the next line, it was supposed to be revenue neutral, wasn't it? Yeah, I mean, the way it was originally structured when the B.C. It was the B.C. Liberal previous government that brought in the carbon tax, and they, they said it was a revenue neutral tax, which meant that any time it went up, the amount of tax that's collected by the increase would have to be offset by reducing income taxes or something else. This is one of the ways they sold it uh, to the public. There has been some debate uh, back and forth about whether it was really revenue neutral or not, but that's certainly the way it was sold to the public. The NDP changed that policy, saying that any, uh, any increases in the carbon tax now will flow directly into the coffers of government, no neutral offset in the, in the tax required. Um, they say they need the money to spend it on other, other pressing needs. So that revenue neutrality ended. There's all kinds of other taxes in, in British Columbia on the price of fuel, and ex- partly explaining why gas is so high. I mean, it's like peeling back an onion. It's like layer after layer of taxation. There's a thing called the B.C. Transportation Financing Authority tax at 6.75 cents a liter. There's a B.C. motor fuel tax. That's 1.75 cents a liter. The big whopping one in Metro Vancouver is the TransLink fuel tax, which is used to pay for transit services in Metro Vancouver. That's 17 cents a liter. Ouch. So, yeah, on a typical fill-up, Roy, you're looking at that's $8.50 on, on a fill-up just for that one tax. So, uh, you know, and that's, yeah. just the, that's just the provincial taxes. There's federal well, taxes, too, of course. Yeah. And, but Mr. Horgan's talking to the governor of Washington State. Isn't that supposed to be the, the panacea? Yeah, it's very weird. I mean, a lot of our fuel that we get in British Columbia comes 
across the border from Washington State and their refineries there. They've had a few shutdowns of some of the refining capacity there for maintenance and whatnot. That's driving some of the, the fuel increases, uh, price increases. Horgan said the other day, at the same time he was complaining about the lack of refining capacity in, in B.C. And, and asking Justin Trudeau to do something about it, he also said that he has been talking to the governor of the state of Washington to perhaps expand uh, refining capacity there. there. It was a very weird comment. Um, we haven't heard much more about that. Uh, it's unclear exactly what sort of talks are going on between B.C. and Washington State on this, but it, it is kind of interesting that at the same time that he's um, jacking up the carbon tax here to get people to drive less, he's opposing the Kinder Morgan pipeline, partly because of environmental reasons and, and uh, climate change. At the same time he's doing that, He's worrying about the price of tax here, the price of gasoline on consumers in British Columbia and saying we should do something about it, maybe maybe help men, maybe work with Washington State on it. So a lot of different messages coming from the How do you negotiate with somebody like that? I, um, I, it's, it's very mysterious. Like One of the weird things about the Kinder Morgan pipeline is that there is diluted bitumen going through that pipeline right now. Everyone is jumping up and down about how dangerous this stuff is. is wouldn't it be terrible if it, if it spilled into the marine environment here? It's very difficult to clean up. Uh, and that's, one of the, that's the primary reason that the B.C. government is opposing the expansion of the pipeline. There, there's uh, 22 million barrels of bitumen going through that pipeline right now. And a lot of it goes to Washington State. It's refined into fuel, and then it's sold back to us across the border uh, here to B.C. And if, if that bitumen ever stopped flowing in, in the pipeline right now, it would make gasoline even even more expensive here. So that's Don't go one, of there. The reasons why, one of the reasons why Horgan doesn't want to touch the existing bitumen flow, only the additional flow yeah. is what he's concerned about. Mike, thank you so much for the time. Buck thirty three sounds pretty good right now. Oh, you got a bargain there. We'd love that. We'd love to pay a dollar thirty three for gas here. All right, Michael. All the best. Yeah, you bet. Mike Smith from uh, Vancouver Province and CKNW Radio. The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on 900 CHML.